What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Cooperators Viewers Couch Pursuit of Platinum. I'm your host, Ben, and if you didn't know, on the Pursuit of Platinum, I give my thoughts on a game that I've platinumed on the PlayStation from top to bottom. Each episode, I talk about the story, gameplay, graphics, and if it's worth it to take the time, and of course, the overall platinability of the game. You can listen to the Cooperators Viewers Couch Pursuit of Platinum wherever you get your podcasts, and you can catch us on a regular basis on Twitch at twitch.tv slash the co underscore operators. You can also connect with us on social media, and those links will be in the description below. But that's enough of all that, let's jump into my journey through Nino Kuni 2, Revenant Kingdom. Level 5, Inc. is a Japanese video game developer and publisher that was first founded in October 1998 by Akihiro Hino after he departed from the now-defunct River Hillsoft. Early in its history, the company enjoyed a close relationship with Sony Computer Entertainment, with many of its games funded by and produced in conjunction with them. Starting in 2007, though, the company started self-publishing its games in Japan. The company is best known for its Dark Cloud, Professor Layton, and Yokai Watch, as well as Nino Kuni. The game was announced during the PlayStation Experience event in December 2015. Unlike the first game, though, which was in collaboration with Studio Ghibli, the sequel did not have their involvement at all, which is really unfortunate and can be really seen both in the story and the overall feel of the game. Level 5 CEO Akihiro Hino said that the sequel would be a a better fulfillment of the ambitions of the original game, with a deeper story and improved visuals, but I'm not sure how much I really saw that happening, but I'll get into that later. The character of Roland was actually developed to allow older players to feel more engaged with the story due to his age and his overall sensibilities. And the Higgledies were now introduced to the battle systems, which took away from the Pokemon-esque collection of the first game and created more of a barter and trade system in order to gain them. After being delayed twice prior to its launch, it was finally released on Microsoft Windows and PlayStation 4 on March 23, 2018. In response to criticism about the game that it was too easy, an update was later added to add two new difficulty modes which were released in June 2018. The game then received three downloadable contents over the year, with the first releasing on August 9th, 2018, the second one titled The Lair of the Lost Lord on December 13th, 2018, and the third The Tale of the Timeless Tome on March 19th, 2019. So what can I say about Nukuni 2? After watching my roommate play the first game in university, I have to admit, going into this, I thought the second would be a slam dunk of a game. Unfortunately, I found out later that things that made the first game so great, both aesthetically as well as story-wise, were because of the collaboration with Studio Ghibli. This split from the prolific animation studio created an environment where an expanded story and freedom for new graphical experience existed, but I feel like it missed the mark in a big way. The split caused some major drawbacks, and besides in name, it's not exactly sure that the two games really could be compared side by side. I found once you got past the cuter elements of the game, both in graphics and the addition of the Higgleties, the appeal was only skin deep. The game is a pretty basic RPG which does little to innovate both from other games in the genre, the fighting styles of other genres, or the characters themselves. 
Cookie cutter personalities and stages create an environment where it's easy and quite frankly boring to get through the puzzles that plague the players throughout the game. The also confusing level design I'll get into later, but it I found it just took away from the overall experience. All of this paired with a lackluster story that frankly did not catch my eye or my attention from the get-go makes this kind of a hard review to do in the first place. There were definitely pluses to the game, but the lack of interest in level design, enemies that seemed to be recolorizations of one another, made the game less appealing after the first couple hours of play. The building aspect was definitely a draw, but after you found out that there was little to no choice on what to build and where to build, other than where to spend your money at the beginning, seemed like a major drawback from what could have been a great system. One aspect I have to say I did enjoy, at least for the first couple encounters, were the skirmishes that were added in. These RTS style fights had you leading four commanders and their fighters into battle. This was something new and exciting to figure out in a way to get the best compositions to use throughout the game. Unfortunately, because I was playing the game, I found my fighters got way too strong, way too fast, and made the rest of the skirmishes way too easy. I find that you kind of pick your four commanders at the start and you kind of ran with them throughout the thing because there wasn't shared experience with the uh, commanders that weren't being used, which was, I think, a drawback because you never got to try out the new abilities if unless you want to go in underleveled. Overall, I thought that these were really a good addition to the game and helped break up the rest of the monotony that I found that the game presented. But that's enough of my initial thoughts. Let's jump into this game and we'll start off with the bronze level the story. Revenant Kingdom is set hundreds of years after the events of Nino Kuni 1. The game begins in the Kingdom of Ding Dong Dell, which features a cat-like race and the mouse-like race, which have a history of animosity. The kingdom is ruled by the House of Trildom, with the current heir, Evan, preparing himself to assume the throne after his father's untimely death. Aside from the Ding Dong Dell, the world is divided into three major realms. Goldpaw, which is focused on gambling and tourism, ruled by the dog folk, Hydropolis, a secluded marine nation of merfolk and humans, and Broadleaf, an industrious, highly advanced nation formed by a corporation that grew too large and needed to establish its independence. Each country rulers has a bond with a powerful being known as a kingmaker. This bond is known as a king's bond, and it not only acts as proof of authority, but also protects the country and its population from harm. The bond between the rulers and their kingmaker can only be broken when the ruler dies or is forcibly stolen by another, which is only possible when the support of its subjects falters. The two main protagonists are Evan, the rightful heir to Ding Dong Dell, and Roland Crane, a president from an unnamed nation of Earth and becomes Evan's friend and loyal companion. The party also includes Tani, her father Batu, who are from a tribe of Sky Pirates, Yender, a young man who is the advisor to the Queen of Hydropolis, and Brocken Meadows, a young woman who is the top engineer and one of the founders of the industrious country of Broadleaf. 
Just so you know, we are about to get into some spoiler territory. If you don't want the plot of the game spoiled, please move ahead to the next section, which will be presentation. I believe that even though I try to stay away from spoilers in my thoughts, I might accidentally say something that could spoil something. So if you are not looking for that kind of analysis, please move ahead and go right to our silver trophy section. The game begins with Roland witnessing a missile explode over the city. In the aftermath, he vanishes and reappears in front of Evan in Ding Dong Dell. Just as Mouse Singer, the advisor of Evan's late father, stages a coup against the cat people. As they escape, they learn that Mouse Singer poisoned the previous king and intends to have Evan killed so that he can assume control of the kingdom. Kind of a dick move, in my opinion, but you know. Assisted by Evan's governess, Arinella, who sacrifices herself for their safety, Evan and Roland escape safely from Ding Dong Dell, and Evan promises to her that he will establish a new kingdom in which everyone can be happy and free. Given this, Evan and Roland travel to Cloud Coil Canyon to reach the King's Cradle to seek out a Kingmaker for themselves. There, they are joined by a group of Sky Pirates, their boss Fatu, and his daughter Tani, who help them reach the shrine in which Evan undergoes the trial. Upon success, Evan is joined by the tiny Lofty, his new Kingmaker. Pretty kind of a cute guy, little yellow guy, spiky hair, reminds me a little bit of Bart Simpson to be honest. After settling in his unclaimed plain area, Roland instructs Evan to make contact with the neighboring kingdom of Goldpaw, where they learn that Goldpaw's ruler, Master Pugnacious, is making use of the gambling to exploit their population. Once Pugnacious is exposed by the party, his king's bond is taken by a mysterious man called Dolaran. The party later learns that Dolaran was once the king from a long-lost kingdom that disappeared in a single day. Despite his errors, Pugnacious retains the support of his people in the end, as he was just being manipulated by Dolaran's bidding. Back to their settlement, the party, along with the pirates and immigrants from other from this other nation, establishes the nation of Evermore. To plan their next step, Evan and the others seek for knowledge at Goldpaw's library, where they learn that Ferdinand, an ancient king who once united the kingdoms of the whole world through the Declaration of Interdependence, which inspires Evan to do the same. After convincing Pugnacious to sign the declaration, Evan and the others set off to Hydropolis, where they fail to prevent Dalaran from stealing the Queen's King Bond as well. The team is always just a little bit late, but they convince her as well to sign the declaration. Nerea's loyal advisor and true love, Leander, agrees to join the party to help stop Dalaran's scheme and have this not happen to anyone else. A similar situation occurs in Broadleaf, where Dalaran steals the King's Bond from President Vip Vector, who also agrees to sign the declaration afterwards. The party is then joined by Bracken. After returning to Evermore, Roland leaves temporarily and sets off to Ding Dong Daryl, where he feigns allegiance with Mousinger in order to retrieve the Mark of the King. After Roland returns to the party, they hold an audience with Mousinger in order to exchange the Mark of the King for his cooperation but he attacks them instead. In the occasion, Dalaran takes advantage of the conflict to steal Mousinger's King Bond as well, 
and reveals that he corrupted Mausinger's advisor to turn Mausinger against Evan's father in the first place. Instead of rewarding Vermin for his service, Dolorad steals his soul and flees. Kind of a Realizing his error, Mausinger reforms and agrees to treat all citizens in Dingyong Dell equally and assigns the decoration as well. With the four king's bonds in his possession, Dalaran begins the ritual to retrieve his own kingmaker, the Honored One, stealing the soul of people around the world in the process. In response, the party returns to Goldpaw's library where they find clues about the Mornstar, a legendary sword capable of destroying the Horned One. After the Mornstar is recreated and entrusted to Evan, the armies of the Five Nations launch an attack on the Horned One to allow the party to reach and confront Dalaran. Facing the party himself, Dalaran reveals that Roland is his soulmate from Earth, and should one of them die, the other will perish as well. Kind of a catch-22, isn't it? You want to stop the bad guy, but you also want to save your friend. He also reveals that his true intention was not to revive his lost kingdom, but to restore his former kingmaker and lover, Alessandra, who has turned into the Horned One because she defied the law of God's loving humans. Dolaran then asks Roland, whose nation on Earth was destroyed by war, to join his side, but he refuses and the party defeats Dolaran in battle, as long as you're good enough to do it. Soon after, the Horned One manifests itself and is slain by the party. Alessandra's spirit appears before Dolaran and reveals that she actually tried to relinquish her power to live beside him. But by doing so, these powers converted into the Horned One itself and departed to the afterlife. Evan then convinces Dolaran to start anew and rebuild his kingdom. Back to Evermore, Evan and the kings of the other major nations celebrate their victory with their subjects, and Roland is sent back home, having one last encounter with Evan before departing. In another encounter with the mysterious boy, Emma discovers that he is actually talking with Ferdinand in his own dreams. Ferdinand is not actually from the past though, but is actually Evan's son and successor to the throne who provided advice to the party through Gulpaw's librarian, Bobbly, who, in reality, is a soothsayer. Many years later, Ferdinand assumes his father's throne and accomplishes Evan's dream of uniting all countries in the world. In the post-credits, Roland, back to original age, pushes forward in his mission to unite all countries on Earth as well, inspired by his journey with Evan. So I don't want to keep harping on this game, mainly because I don't like tearing down other people's work. And I'm sure that a lot of people out there loved the story for this game, and even found it compelling. But I think that it just didn't grab me the way that it may have grabbed other people. As I mentioned before, the characters were a bit too cookie cutter for my liking. And though it did have its moments, like the love scene in Hydropolis, which I found very cute, I found myself bored a lot of time when I was listening to the dialogue between characters. This isn't a great thing for an RPG that's focused on story. I should never be bored listening to great characters talk to each other. The final reveal was a great twist. I thought that the villain had good motivations even, and it seemed like it might have been a little bit too rushed of a story note in the final part of the game, adding in that Roland and Dalaran were connected and not letting that breathe at all. But other than that, I think that it just fell flat. I found that the side plots of the 
of recruiting characters to your kingdom was a good thread overall, but the dialogue between most of these characters was not compelling and it was not interesting, especially when you had to listen to a hundred different conversations with a hundred different people. More on that later though. I do wish more explanation was there for the Higglety's and why they're around and moreover why they decided to help Evan and his companions. I know there was some explanation with the Higglety's master lady, the old lady, I don't can't remember her name, but all in all, I would say that you should give this story a try as it seems to a lot of people like it, at least on the internet. But if you're not crazy about the story from the get-go, just know that it doesn't get much better. It kind of always sticks with these same characters, and you have half your party at the very beginning. I mean, you gain a couple more people along the way, but overall, you're going to keep the same kind of personalities. And even the twist where Roland goes bad for a bit, I didn't believe for a second that he was actually betraying them, even though it kind of really tried to push you onto that but it just wasn't there you know again i hate to be so negative about this because again a lot of people love this story people worked really hard on this story and they worked really hard in this game i just wish that i had been able to identify with it more i guess and really feel like it's more than just something else that's already been done but i just couldn't um but again definitely give it a try to see if you like the story because I'm, my opinion is not going to be the same as yours, obviously. So just give it a couple hours, and if you really don't like the story by that point, it's probably going to be a pass. But that's enough on the plot. Let's jump into the Silver Trophy, and we'll welcome back everybody who decided to skip the plot section in more favor of not having spoilers. So let's start with the graphics. There are two main styles that are used in Inokuni 2. There's a cute chibi style that's used for the overall world adventure and there's also the in fighting as well as in dungeon which is using a more classic tunish jrpg style this contrast is something that i really enjoyed and brought me back to the old school rpgs where you had a different style for general roaming around as well as being in battle say with like final fantasy 7 and getting like that juxtaposition uh, I know why they did it in the original ones because it took it would have taken way too much to make it kind of that crazy graphics but it really brought me back to old school RPGs. Each region of the map also feels unique uh, from the others. From the corporate steampunk area to the icy frailyord uh, the map encompasses some really great scenery. Where my problem comes for when you enter a new dungeon I want it to feel fresh but it only feels fresh for a moment. The maps feel very repetitive and the scenery never really changes much from the room just before. This can also be seen heavily in the dream doors, which with a set of five to six main designs, it's used throughout all 10 of these doors that you have to go through. And for someone who's platinuming a game, it gets so repetitive and boring to see these same overall areas over and over and over again. I would have liked each one to maybe be themed after the area that they were in. So an ice stage, a steampunk stage, the plains, the mountains. But instead we just got this very generic, overused, constantly used design for these dungeons. The enemy design as a whole is an area that I also didn't like as much. I liked it for parts of it, but others not so much. Though many of the monsters were just kind of recolorizations of the ones that you found in the last area, but with higher levels, you also got this great 
Kingmaker added in there every so often. These bosses that really took a little extra effort, extra something that were never reused for just general enemies, which you find sometimes in these kind of games where a boss becomes a smaller version and becomes just a regular enemy that you fight every day. I thought that each Kingmaker also felt unique from each other, having to set in different kind of styles. So there was a dragon, I think there was a giant tortoise. It felt really good to see all these like great models, great characters, and you never really saw them again. The character design was another one that I was actually really impressed with. With multiple races of beings in the world, it could be very easy to just copy and paste them all over, but most of the NPCs even felt like they were differentiated from the next, even if it was just in subtle ways. This gave a sense of the real world and not just being in a video game world. The exception to this is the armies, but since the armies are forced to wear the same clothing, uh, the, so each soldier kind of looks exactly the same as the other, but the four armies do admittedly have a different look and feel to them. Uh, so that's either the robots or the mer people with their specialized armor, the mouse people, all that kind of thing. They all look a little bit different. The music is another area that I really liked about the game. The soundtrack was just amazing. Um, I have to say that I was happy to listen to it throughout the game. I don't think it was until near the very end that I decided to go off, but that was more because I was platinuming the game and I wanted to listen to something different, so I think I started listening to a lot of podcasts during that time. But overall, I have to say that I was super impressed with how much the music kept me engaged. The next section is the map. The map is a wonderful addition to Nino Kuni 2. It's large enough to feel like a full world, but not so large that it feels cumbersome to get around it. With the use of waypoints to fast travel, it also helps a lot to get from one section to the other, which was very, very useful when trying to platinum this game. At one point, I found myself just riding around the map in the airship even, with no real goal other than just to see what the map was as a whole. As I've mentioned before, there's a lot of different regions that you explore throughout the story, but the map has so much more to offer outside of those four major regions. This includes caves and hideaways that, unless you're really looking for them, you would never find. I really liked that this aspect was added in, so that people who wanted to dive deeper into the game had that opportunity to, and they weren't just stuck doing kind of the storyline and that's it. I know that there are a lot of games out there that do this, I mean, most of your open worlds do, but none seem to do it in such a way that you actually have no reason to go to these areas. I mean, even The Witcher 3 had a reason to go to each place, whether it was for a contract or a side quest. This didn't have that, and I actually really appreciated that. With the exception of the enemies feeling repetitive and recolorized, and the dream doors feeling exactly the same for all 10 of them, I really enjoyed the graphical aspects and the musical aspects of this game. With so much to explore, and the world as a whole feeling full and unique from each other part, I enjoyed exploring and finding some of the hidden spaces that kind of fall through the cracks otherwise. The graphics were a great mix of chibi and not chibi, because sometimes chibi just gets annoying to look at, and the transition between the two felt extremely smooth and not jarring. That sometimes happens when you have to make these kinds of changes. Overall, I would say that the graphics brought me in, they kept me in, and same with the music. And if you're going for a game that looks very aesthetically pleasing, this might be the one for you. Now let's jump into the gold trophy section, which is gameplay. 
Predominantly, Nino Kuni 2 Revenant Kingdom is a role-playing game played from the third person's perspective. Players complete quests, errands, both in a linear progressive storyline with set objectives, as well as participating in a huge amount of side quests, which range from skirmishes to fetch quests to kill quests. Outside of quests, though, players can also freely roam around the world, where they can explore towns, villages, dungeons, and other worldly places, and if you get the DLC, it adds even more places to explore. This also includes a progressive dungeon called the Dream Doors, in which you need to get 10 in order to get uh, one of the side characters who will help your town. When players encounter enemies, they enter into a free roam style battlefield. During battles, players command a single ally in their party, being able to switch between them at will. You can have three people in your chosen party as well, and each one will have unique abilities and ways to do things. The other two characters that the player does not command fight freely on their own, often wasting your mana on things that you might not want them to, which is very annoying. A Zing Gauge is also managed to how often you can use your three equipped weapons, and characters can use mana to use their ranged weapons. When you score enough hits with a weapon, your, your Zing Gauge fills up to 100% allowing you to deal more basic damage with it. You can also expend that full charge to power up your special abilities. As you get further into the game, you can delve in the game tactic tweaker as well, which is a great way of augmenting how much damage you do to certain types of enemies. Also, you can adjust how much loot and what kinds of loot you gain, and what kind of elemental damage you can deal and defend against. You can go pretty deep into the combat system, which is actually a little surprising, but you are also not punished quite as much as I wish for ignoring it. If you missed the combat of the original Nino Kuni, you might appreciate the Higgledies. Understood to be the phenomena more than individuals, Higgledies are strange little elementals who help Evan out in his journey. You can equip up to four at a time, and in combat they appear to passively attack as well as provide buffs to your party. Every now and again, uh, they will also spread out into a visible area and they can be activated. Upon activation, they will either do a powerful attack, like shooting with a cannon, or providing you with some kind of boon, like healing. Uh, there are also ways to min-max your Hilgotees, but in all honesty, just choose the ones that you like best. I did. I kind of kept the same Hilgotees from the beginning to the end until I got the really, really powerful ones. The game isn't hard enough to need to research which ones are best either. Just find the ones you really enjoy the abilities on and the ones that maybe give you a little bit of healing, because let's be honest, you don't get a lot of that. Tainted monsters also provide challenging boss encounters to the game. Although a lot stronger than normal monsters, the risk is usually worth the reward. In Revenant Kingdom, players have the ability to build and manage Evan's kingdom, like I said before. The castle management is one of the newer features added into the Nino Kuni games, and it allows players to assign citizens to different workspaces within your kingdom. From there, they can either earn materials, or you can get helpful bonuses and research to add to your characters. This aspect, I guess, of the game was so badly managed, in my opinion. I know you have limited resources, both in people and money at the start, but once you get going, it really does not matter because you have so much resources and money, especially if you're, like, if you really want to game the system, you leave your, con like, your console on for a couple hours, come back, 
collect everything, leave your console on for a couple hours, come back, collect everything, and you can just do it like that. Heck, you can be... I know with, like, the work from home, you could have it on in the side, come back to it every couple hours on your break, collect everything, turn it off. It also doesn't help that they kind of chose exactly what building goes where and what characters would be best in each area. It would have been better for to say this character is good at resource collecting and then you can choose where to put them within the resources instead of having them be like this character is good at mining or this character is really good in these exact places. I would have liked more choice into where to put the people. I would have also liked more choice to decide where to put things so I could have made my kingdom unique, made it my own. But you can't do that in this, unfortunately, and I found that to be a very big drawback. Because if you think of things like Disgaea, in Disgaea, I think it was Disgaea 4, that you were able to create your own map of where to put your classrooms. Or even in Legend of Nana, where you could decide where to put each area on the map in order to make a better map for yourself. Gives you some kind of bonuses. That kind of thing would have been really cool. What if you wanted to put all your mines in one section, and if you did, you got some kind of bonus for it. But if you split it up, maybe it gave a bonus to something else. Like putting it next to, say, the weaponry. If you put it next to your blacksmith, it gave a boost to the blacksmith, but took away from the overall resources. It would have been a really cool system if it had been really deep, but instead it kind of just felt like something else you had to do in order to get powerful. And I didn't like that aspect of it, I have to say. The last thing that they added were the skirmishes. Evan, with the support of four main armies, assault command posts and enemy forces while maintaining his own forces health these can be very entertaining to try and get it the best way especially if you're under leveled uh it was sometimes the most exciting when you only had like one health left when you eventually hit the last character and along with that you also had to use health and bonuses in order to use your special abilities which included air strikes and that kind of thing while the majority of the skirmishes are optional there are a few key ones that you're required to do for the plot and if you want to get the platinum you have to do almost every single one anyways both to get the right level as well as to unlock the others so my thoughts some more thoughts on gameplay i found that the battle system was a pretty good way to do it it's not nothing new i mean we've had free roam circle based rpgs for a while but one part I did find super annoying was that they limited each of your battles by the number of items you could use. I guess not the number of items, but the number of unique items you could use. So if you had potions, you could only have 10 of the, like, the lowest level potion, and then I think it was 5, then 2, then 1. And that didn't really seem to hit me in the right way. I know it made things a little more challenging because then you can just spam out items, but it also made it so that if I had enough potions to get through a battle outside of battle and went in and then died by like a single HP, it was super, super annoying because I knew that I had those in my inventory, but I couldn't actually use them because of what the game decided that I could do. I shouldn't be limited to their system instead of being limited by the resources I have available to my characters in general. 
It didn't make any sense. It didn't really explain it either, why they would limit you. They just kind of did. And again, maybe that was something in the first game that was there too, and I was just not used to it, but I found it to be such a drawback of the combat system. It also made it so, like, why would you need to buy all these extra potions? Just buy the minimum number. And I guess if you had chain fights, then it would be helpful. But overall, just annoying. Uh, again, I think that he did it so that it would add a little more difficulty and you didn't spam items. But it was just such a drawback in my mind. The Higgleties were another section that I thought were a little bit overpowered. Once you got a good Higglety, you could actually go and use them in such a crazy way, especially once you start leveling them up, to do immense amounts of damage. I know I used a Dark Higglety for quite a bit, I think they were called Shadow actually, but I had them and they created this like gravity field around the enemy and it did thousands of damage when I really shouldn't have been able to do that much and really it was a key part of defeating every boss. Once I got to a certain point and I started getting these like better Higgleties, like ones that created a knight that would fight along you and things, it just made combat too easy. And I know technically I could have just not used them, but if they're a mechanic in the game, they shouldn't offset the difficulty that much. The last thing I have to say is for the skirmishes. I did say before that I enjoyed the skirmishes overall, but again, they got boring. Uh, there was nothing really new after a certain point because they stopped adding new enemies in, they stopped adding new strategies in, and let's be honest, I got to a point where I could build guard towers and I could really just do whatever I wanted because I had so much health, and I would just build guard towers and it would do a lot of the work for me. So I think that the complaints that a lot of people had at the beginning of this game being too easy were still there even on a higher difficulty level. But that is enough on gameplay. Let's jump in to is this game worth it or the platinum trophy section. So was it worth the effort to get this platinum trophy? Most of the trophies you'll get naturally through the regular progression of the game. The main exceptions are the Tainted Monsters, the Dream Doors, and Citizen Recruitment, as well as getting your castle to the maximum level. Some of these things are extremely time-consuming and also extremely annoying. Getting up to the level where you need to be to beat the final boss of the Dream Doors and the top-level Tainted Monsters can be a long journey in itself, unless you have the DLC. Both DLCs give you areas to skyrocket both your experience as well as your equipment. They also they give you these weapons that are hundreds and hundreds of power higher than what you could actually get in the regular game and they help you make the higher level battles even easier. I have to say I did use these because I found that the dream door guy was just too annoying to do it otherwise but between that and the high level higglities that you get later on it just made it boring in a lot of ways and just a time sink. The rest of the cleanup can be done as when you are making your way through the leveling process. Some citizens require you to get items for them, kill specific monsters, with some of them wanting you to kill tainted monsters as well, which you have to do naturally. One citizen, which is pretty hidden, is one from the Aaron shop. This is annoying because you had to do a certain number of errands before he would actually give you the citizen's area. 
I had to do about 120 myself before it popped, but I've seen all over the internet that it's just completely random. Some people got it at 80, some people got it at 30. So I think it's just depending on where you are in the game and how far you've gotten overall. Skirmishes are another one that can be a little bit annoying if you don't keep up with them. This is because some pop randomly throughout the game and means that you can be left with one or two more and just waiting for them to appear on your map. So you have to be fast traveling back and forth and back and forth and waiting for them to pop up. Some skirmishes only appear when going on a citizen request as well, and others are part of lines of skirmishes that, again, sometimes don't even pop in a regular way, which was super annoying because I remember I spent probably about two hours trying to get the last one to pop up. Any way you look at it, this randomness can be very aggravating to someone who's trying to platinum a game and can be really annoying for a final step of the game because, again, it feels like a time sink that you're not even getting anything out of it. So take my advice, when you have the levels and you see a skirmish on the map, do it right away. Just don't even skip it, just go right to it, finish it, and go back to your regular adventure. Because if not, you could be like me and spend hours doing absolutely nothing just waiting for this last one to pop. So this is my final section, and it's deleting the game, or giving my final thoughts and platinability. This game is by no means a short platinum, I have to say. There's a lot of backtracking, there's a lot of fetch quests that take up a lot of time. The grind can sometimes be long and boring if you aren't going through the DLC content, and a lot of the game starts to feel incredibly repetitive after a short amount of time. But all in all, it isn't actually a hard platinum to accomplish. I enjoyed some parts of the game to start, the combat, the additions of the Higgletees, the skirmishes, the art, the environment, but the problem is that I felt like it was all too repetitive, and it didn't keep my interest as much as I wish it had. As well, like I said before, the story and characters were just too cookie-cutter for me to really enjoy them that much. I felt like after the first section with Roland and Evan that I got tired of their character arcs altogether. Evan was too upbeat, too ready to go. He wasn't seeming to deal with the death of his father that just happened not too long ago. And I know that he's trying to be a good king and everything, but that would weigh heavy. He also then makes friends with somebody who murdered his father in cold blood. I know that they were coerced or convinced to do it, but it still wouldn't doesn't really make sense why he would just become friends with him again. I know forgiveness is there, but I have to say, if someone poisoned my dad, I would not forgive them like this right away. Or ever. You know, maybe I would just take my kingdom back or my force and add them to your own. But it is a story. It is meant for a... I don't know, maybe a younger audience than I am right now, but, or maybe you just need to not look into it as much as I did, but I don't know, it just didn't feel as good as I wish it did. Often during the game, I felt like I wanted to skip cutscenes and dialogue so that I didn't have to keep up with these characters and so I could just finish it. Obviously I didn't because I'm doing reviews on these games, but it didn't, it felt more like a time waste than anything else. Uh, listening to these character conversations because nothing really moved forward. The story never really moved forward from these conversations and it was quite annoying, honestly. So, if you're looking for a grind of a game with a platinum that isn't 
going to take immense skill to get, but is going to take a lot of time, then this might be a good game for you. You might love the story more than I did at least, and you might even love the characters, but if you're just looking for something to get you through some of this crazy pandemic time, this might be a good game to get your mind off of it if nothing else than the grind. Though, if you're also looking for a grind, you might look at games like D the Disgaea series, because they will grind the hell out of you, but also has kind of a more funny storyline that might keep you a little more interested. But all in all, I would say that this game is platinable, but it's not replayable. Sorry guys, but that is going to do it for me today. Like I said at the start of the show, if you didn't know, uh, we are the Cooperators Viewers Couch. This has been The Pursuit of Platinum, and you can catch us on social media and wherever you get your podcasts. Please, if you can't, if you like what I do, if you like the content we put out, give us some five-star reviews. And if you want to listen to something that isn't gaming-related and more towards the films and TV side, give The Cooperators Viewers Couch a listen as well. Give us a subscribe, give us a like, give us a five-star review. We talk about everything from The Mandalorian to Picard to different movie franchises like Harry Potter and Pirates of the Caribbean. And we are still going. Uh, starting back in October, we will be going weekly again. We will be starting with, I think, Ghostbusters and then going into Mandalorian Season 2 uh, and probably Star Wars shortly after that. So until next time, everybody, I'm Ben. Grab your controllers, grab a seat, and join me in my pursuit of Platinum.